0: Hello and thank you for joining us for the Reelcom webinar. Today we'll be talking about selecting the right technology solution sets, and this will be for next-gen building technologies. This is uh, part one of our Intelligent Design and Construction series and before we get started and bring in our panelists, let's go over a few housekeeping items. You can use the Q&A section to submit your questions or comments for the panelists and we'll try to get to all the questions at the end of the session. The session today will actually only be an hour, um, but we'll have plenty of time at the end to address your questions. For the best webinar experience, we recommend that you log out of any other internet applications that are currently running. And If you do run into any technical issues, you can contact me at spamperad at willcom.com. We are recording the session and we'll be making the recording available within the next few days. And you can also download a copy of the presentation materials from the handout section. I'd like to thank our sponsor, TurnTight, for joining us today and we'll learn more about this company um, throughout the session. And with that, I'd like to introduce you to today's moderator, Charlie Buscarino. Um, Charlie is a recognized leader in the design and implementation of integrated smart building systems. He founded the Clarion Group in uh, 2002, and under his leadership, the Clarion Group has developed innovative solutions for more than 100 clients and 55 million square feet of properties, including many very well-known signature projects. Uh, With that, Charlie, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much for moderating.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks. Uh, It's a great opportunity to be here. I'm happy to, to contribute. Um, so let me, let me start by kind of laying out, you know, the idea of selecting the right solution set is is a broad topic. All right. And so there's, there's a number of areas that we focus on, you know, sustainability, certainly after COVID health and wellness is, 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 you know, in front of everyone's mind, obviously being safe and secure is always an issue. I think, you know, customer and employee experiences have certainly elevated this idea of, Real estate being, you know, almost a more of a service. I think we saw that before, but now trying to get people back to the office, getting them back to work, uh, reducing friction, making it desirable for them to be there is certainly an item that you know, we're focusing on now. And the need for flexibility. I mean, this this hybrid workspace um, and the need to be nimble um, as we kind of evolve to figure out where the, you know, the the direction, the future direction will go um, in in you know post COVID. Um, Certainly in real estate, being cost effective has always been, you know, front of mind, ROI has always been a driver for, for activities. And I think data analytics, the need for insights, okay, the, I, the need to understand what is happening in my building, what is happening in the market is a data-driven item, okay? So the, the need for data and to have that knowledge has been key. Um, and so as we talk about these broad categories of focus, you know, fundamentally, though, it all drills down to the components and there's thousands of components that we're dealing with in this ecosystem. And it's not even a matter that, you know, we're dealing with the quantity of components, but they all have to now communicate in order to get the insights and the data and, and um, you know, the the smart technology, have it leveraged to its maximum capability. Those insights are, are important and the ecosystem and the connectivity is key. Um, So. The one thing though that we know that's common across all these things regardless of the area of focus or the system is they consume power. That's a that's a common thread that we start to look at in this. And as we go into looking at where the market is going, we realize we're going to end up with even more of these devices. Okay? We're looking at a, a you know the market size is expected to grow to 1 trillion by 2030. Even as we look at the the software indicators, you know, the, the software growth is, you know, it's typically it's connected to an edge device or an application or so on, you know, driving more uh, uh, activity in devices, more consuming power and so on. And even further, as you start looking at smart cities, we start going beyond the buildings. You know, we're going to see that we're 2.5 trillion in and, and 2026. So if I can get to my next slide. There we go. So that said, there's a lot of focus, you know, by the industry over the next three years to, to take a look at, you know, what does it mean for ESG? OK, so whether it's supporting the bottom line, whether it's, you know, emerging policy goals that recognizes this, you know, this this issue, um, whether it's being a good citizen, um, a lot of attention is being paid to, to ESG. Um, I'm going to actually read this because there's a a statistic that I found interesting. Is that the energy consumed in the building sector, which includes residential and commercial structures, increases by 65% between 2018 and 2050, from 91 quadrillion to 139 quadrillion BTUs. Now there's a number of factors that are impacting that, you know, which is rising income, urbanization, increased access to electricity, leading to energy demand. But there's there's definitely a trend on where this is going. And so so when we look at seeking the right solution set, which is the theme of this conversation, it would make sense that we would certainly want to, I pick devices and solutions that are energy efficient um, as as a common theme across all of the aspects of, of this market. So fortunately, today we have three experts Um, in this area. And we're really fortunate in that we're going to take a a look across um, three components of this. We're going to take a look at the macro side of it. We're going to take a look at the platform side of it. And we're going to take a look at the component side of it. So with that, you know, I want to, you know, we'll get into our panelists and uh, have them give us insights as to how to handle sustainability as we look across these solution sets. Okay, so With that, I'd like to introduce Kevin Powell. So Kevin is the director of the Center for Emerging Building Technologies and GSA's Green Proving Ground. Kevin focuses on identifying innovative technologies, practices, and processes that optimize how GSA designs, delivers, and operates more than 185 million square feet of federally owned real estate. He manages a portfolio of over 13 active testbed projects in the areas of next-generation building envelope, energy management, HVAC, water conservation, lighting, and lighting control systems. And so, with that, I'd like to introduce Kevin. Thank you,
2: Charlie, and uh, thank you, um, folks at RealCom, for attending this. Um, just a, you know, a, just a, a few sort of additional notes on that that sort of the scale of our our enterprise and why this matters um, and that's really going to be the theme of what i want to talk about over the next 10 minutes um, we of course function as the landlord for the civilian federal government that's what the general services administration does so there's about 1.1 million folks who who work in space that we um, we provide them and at at our core, that's our mission, right? It's to help those people in our buildings um, work effectively, and that's what that's what we're measured by. That's what we drive towards. Um, the other side of that is that we need to provide that space that works for them uh, in a way that is really a good steward of taxpayer dollars, and that means that it's uh, it, it operates efficiently and doesn't cost much. To do so it costs as little as possible to do that while providing the best quality space and then we have an increasing number of sustainability goals that are being set out particularly by this administration and of course are just what it's going to take to uh, have uh, people on the planet happily uh, living here um, as we go forward so we've committed to 100 percent renewable um, electricity by 2025 and we anticipate a forthcoming executive order that's going to set some very ambitious net zero carbon um, goals for us. So with that said, um, let's let's talk about how we get there. So how do we get to these uh, net zero carbon buildings that we all think are what is required for the future and provide the best quality spaces for the workforce that will be returning to facilities post-pandemic. Uh, the the way that uh, we look at this is that the facility of the future is a smart building. And by a smart building, what we mean is that all of these many, many endpoints, and that's what Charlie just showed in that previous diagram, they're operating as a connected system rather than as individually optimized widgets. Um, that, that is absolutely the core critical definition for us of what a smart building is. Um, There are four pillars that we have identified for a smart building. Uh, First, that it supports our sustainability goals. That is a key expectation, as we said, of this administration. The second is that it delivers healthy workspaces. Uh, We've been holding a series of focus groups as part of an initiative we call Workplace 2030. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, But every single one of those focus groups that we've held finds that the expectation when we return to facilities is that workspaces are healthy. There's just, that that's what people want to know. Um, We also are aware that all of these connected uh, building technologies come with cyber risk and an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So we wanna do this in a cyber secure way. And then lastly, as I say, we are, I mean, we're here because we work for you, the taxpayer. We need to be good stewards of your money. That's what, that's what our, our, our goal is to do, our mission. So we're looking for more efficient and effective ways of operating our buildings. Well, so the, the, I guess the, the, the key thing is when you uh, connect up all this stuff, uh, when you pull all these systems together and operate them as a system, and you have all these thousands and thousands of endpoints, uh, what do you have? You have a so-called data lake. Uh, now, the idea of a smart building and the sort of the secret sauce that makes it all work is that all of these endpoints come together, right? We converge them. We converge them in some way that they are all speaking the same language. That's the open part of this. We like to have open protocols that these devices can speak so that again they can all talk to each other and interoperate and that we normalize all that data that is to say we know that it's all like all the data is at the same time right so that time sync is really really critical in being able to understand how things are operating so now we have that we build out this network we have all these points they're all interconnected they're all interoperable all of those thousands of sensors and meters and controllers and actuators all that sort of live and static external data it all comes together and now what right that's that's really the the kind of the key question i'm going to start uh i'm going to offer three um use cases that we see as the three core use cases for a smart building um, and I think there there was a talk. I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was a start with the why. Um, so we know what we're doing, we know what we can do, and we know how we can do it. But the question is, why are we doing? It? That's that's what we really want to um, get get. That that's what we want to get to. So um, all these, you know, so three use cases. Let's start with this. I, I would consider it to be the foundational um, use case. Um, and, and use case number one is uh, something that is is called automated system. There's a lot of fancy acronyms here. Uh, Department of Energy who supports a lot of our work is very big on acronyms because we're all feds, I guess. Um, but uh, the first one is is what um, DOE calls automated system optimization, or that's how they that's the typology of what this is. Um, it's a fancy way of saying that a building operates as it should, by itself as much as possible. Um, if you think of a contemporary car, that's what a car, that's what a contemporary car is doing. It's got all these microprocessors in there. They're making sure that all of these different as, attributes of what makes the car operate are actually operating as they should. That's why you don't need to go in for constant tune-ups. It's constantly tuning itself up essentially. Um, the way we would also look at this is that um, brick. this is bricks off the load for our facility manager. That is to say, if the building could operate, and these are very complicated um, systems, if they can operate um, as they should without without that facility manager or um, O&M guy sitting at his chair, that's what we're looking for. Um, We have a current testbed validation of this this type of technology. I, I need to also say that the broad category that this fits within is something called an energy management information system or EMis. Um, and uh, as part of that uh, testbed validation, um, we, we, we have a series of focus groups. Um, and, and I want to share a comment um, from one of those, um, one of those focus groups. Um, this gentleman said uh, that what this, this particular EMIS does is it takes the pressure off running ability it is impossible to track 30,000 points in a building. The margin of error is small and the scope is huge. And so again, that's, that's I think the, the, the biggest promise of uh, a smart building, of this converged network, of this interoperability of operating things as a system is that it just fundamentally works better and easier and it's more appropriate to the kinds of technologies that we currently have to to basically operate our buildings. Um, Just a quick, before we move on from this, um, I need to also say that within this broader category of energy management information systems, there's a couple of other components. Sometimes these are operating in standalone mode, but typically they're operating um, collectively. Um, And those other two um, components are what's called an energy information system or EIS. And this is the tracking and reporting. We certainly at the government do a lot of that. Uh, And the other, which I think is more familiar to uh, many people is what's called a fault detection and diagnostic tool. Uh, It's essentially identifying things that are not operating as they should. It's typically rule-based. So first and foundational use case is this energy management information system that allows us to operate a very complicated building in a fairly automated way. The the second use case, and and we're again thinking this is, when we talk about the facility of the future, we're relatively confident that all facilities in the future, 2030, let's just say as our time horizon, are going to be some flavor of grid interactive. And so again, apologies for uh, all of the acronymizing here, uh, but uh, again, we work with Department of Energy. They um, like to have these sort of typology bins that they can put things in. And so this typology bin is called a Grid Interactive Efficient Building or GEB. I think you'll be hearing more about GEBs in the coming years. Um, the the, the key to a GAB and the reason why we think it's so foundational is that the facility of the future is going to be a net zero carbon building. That's just the way it's got to be if we're going to have a healthy planet for humans. Um, it's going to be served by a net zero carbon grid. And to make that net zero carbon building, net zero carbon grid work, we need to be able to dynamically manage energy consumption within a building. So it's not just about reducing the overall amount, that's the efficiency component, but it's also that time of use of energy and the amount of use at any given moment. And if you think about it, what an energy management information system is allowing you to do when you have all these connected pieces is it can take it can also work with that utility, take that grid signal and then manage the building to make sure that the amount of energy the grid has on it at any given moment is matched by the amount of consumption that all of these endpoints in particular buildings are wanting to consume not so essentially moving from an all-you-can-eat uh model to something that's a little bit more uh more, more subtle and so on uh, the good news is that all of the technologies that we need to make a grid, interactive, efficient building are here today. Uh, The meeting the moment challenge is that they're here today in the way that all of the components that made for the personal computer uh, were available in 1984 when the first Mac and the first PC uh, came out. Um, So again, it's early days, but all the pieces that we need are available. So that's exciting. And then the third uh the third use case and the last one that I want to talk about here is really um uh, goes back to again, why are we what are we doing here? Well, we're providing space for tenants. Um there's you know we wouldn't have buildings if there weren't people in buildings. And what um what I think everybody is aware of is well, first of all, most white-collar folks and certainly almost all federal employees, the vast majority of federal employees have been working from home for the past 18 or more months. Uh, And the other thing everybody is pretty clear about is when we return to facilities, and we will return to facilities, uh, we're going to be returning in a way that is not the way it was in uh, March of 2020. Um, So a lot of effort is going on, not just at the federal level, but at every pretty much every large organization and smaller organizations. Uh, of trying to think about what that facility of the future is going to look like, what we're doing, and what we we have a program that's called Workplace 2030, and the core idea of Workplace 2030 is to uh, do what's called backcasting. And backcasting is to say, where do we expect to be in eight years, and then how did we get there? So that's that's kind of the Workplace 2030 idea, and. Um, you know as it says on the slide, what we're really talking about is uh, identifying what that new range of 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 services um, that are are going to be that's going to su- support that that workplace uh, and our tenants those 1.1 million people who are going to be working in the space and there's as we've gone through a, a fairly complicated process to to sort of Tease that out. As I say, there's been all sorts of surveys and focus groups and meetings and brainstormings and, and so on. Uh, we've come up uh, with, uh, with essentially a, a core of four solution sets, uh, four broad solution sets. Um, the first focusing on tenant services, that is to say, an end to end workplace experience from the time you leave your house to the time you return to your um, house. Uh, maybe you're working at home, and there's that part of it too. But certainly, while you're, when you're, everything from the navigating to the office to where would you actually sit, to what sort of resources are you going to use, what days would you be coming in if you're a hybrid worker, all of those kinds of things um, are, are what we're talking about. And uh, the, the the second solution set really is around this. Well, it, it draws on the fact that we're expecting very, very dynamic occupancy. Um, what a hybrid work environment or a remote first work environment, uh, depending on which, which um, organization you're talking to, is is looking at is that people are, generally speaking, at least this going into it. proposition is that people are coming in somewhere between one and two days a week to the office. And they're coming in for a... Uh, you know, a set of reasons that that makes sense of why they would be coming in. But what that also tells you is that you you just the office could be like an accordion here. I mean, some days it might be really maxed out in terms of people in it. Some days there may be very few people in it. We're going to try and balance all of this. That's part of what that tenant services um, solution set is trying to do this, figure out how do you balance that. But the other piece of this is that operating a building in this kind of very, very dynamic um Uh, scenario is not how we used to do it, right? It's not a time clock looking thing. It's not a, you know, Monday to Friday looking thing where every day is the same as every other day. So we need to be able to have um, a way to manage the facility based on its use. Um, So that's what we mean by dynamic Um, O&M. The third big solution set is that as, we, as I said, uh, we're anticipating that people are really focused on uh, a healthy workspace. Um, and a healthy workspace is one that has optimized indoor environmental quality. We think that uh, really, again, there's a, a host of ways to do this in this dynamic way, uh, but all of them, well, uh, uh, then there's also continuity of operations. And I, I'm gonna come back to what's sort of the glue that's holding all this together uh so the continuity of operations and we're we're in a case where you can really see that uh as as a challenge right that um we're we've been you know evacuated from our facilities for more than 18 months well we've been able to continue to work that's the continuity what's holding all of this together is this sort of rich censoring environment that and this ability to operate a building with an energy management information system that pulls all that data together and with that i'm going to turn this back over to charlie
1: thanks all right so so kevin I i have a question that comes to mind all right so your role is the director of emerging building technologies right but we know you got 185 million square feet so how you're applying these emerging technologies to to your legacy, you know, uh, properties?
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great, that's a great question there, Charlie. Um, so uh, yeah, so there's a there's a couple of things I want to say about that. Um, the the first is that the program wouldn't exist if we weren't doing that, right? So this is not a program to develop case studies that sit on a shelf. It's really to help shape the investments that. Uh, that we make, and 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 really we recognize that there's there's sort of three insertion points typically, uh, if not really generally in a in a building's life cycle. And what for existing buildings there's really two large uh, insertion points. One of them is that there's just end of life, right? Something has broken, it's finished its useful life, and what you would typically do is you would replace it in kind. What our program does, and we have a whole series of mechanisms to help our agency with this, is we say, instead of buying what you had, buy this new better product that we validate. So that's mm-hmm. the end of life proposition. And the second one, which we anticipate actually is going to be growing, um, again, we'll see how this legislation uh, shapes up that's out there, uh, the infrastructure package and the reconciliation package. Uh, but the, the second one is really what we would consider to be, um, you know, essentially that retrofit market. You have something that's working, there's something that's that much better, and you're gonna replace what's already working with something that's that much better. Uh, The most typical thing in most people's lives is you're taking out, you know, like in your home, you would take out an incandescent lamp, you put in an LED because, not because the incandescent lamp failed, but because the LED is just that much better.
1: Makes sense.
3: Thanks. All right.
1: All right. So now I want to take an opportunity to uh, introduce Hannah Walker. So, Hannah is the Chief Operating Officer of Sinclair Digital, uh, a low voltage design and consulting company developing digital DC microgrid buildings. That's a mouthful. She joined Sinclair Group to initially help with the design and implementation of smart building technologies at the Sinclair Hotel, um, which was completed in January of 2020 as the most diverse PoE-powered DC microgrid building in the world. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Hannah.
4: Thanks, Charlie. So today we're talking about selecting the right solution set for your projects. Kevin talked a lot about how he thinks about that really from a large scale, you know, lots of properties. How do we increase um, energy efficiency? How do we make our spaces healthier? You know, how do we use, um, you know, and then how do we protect our buildings with cybersecurity? So we um, are thinking about all those exact same things. And one of the most important things that we think about is, yeah, how do we achieve the sustainability goals and the energy goals and the wellness goals but how do we make it cost effective for the end user? And the way we think we can achieve those goals, the intelligence and the sustainability together is really by incorporating low voltage DC technology into a building. Um, And I'll talk to you about why that is. So we see buildings right now um, really going through an intrinsic change and we call it um, the Tesla moment for buildings. So essentially, just like in the car industry where we're seeing now a whole industry move in a huge way from a shift from, you know, gasoline powered fossil fuel centered to an electric approach. We see this exact same thing happening now in buildings. So we're going from buildings that are traditionally wired um, completely in AC power, which is alternating current power. And now we're seeing, though, the endpoints in buildings um, from, you know, appliances, LED lighting, um, HVAC systems, ceiling fans, anything in a building that you might have, is all shifting to internally DC components. We also see at the exact same time the advancements, and a lot of this comes from the um, car industry, the huge advancements in battery storage solutions. That's a DC solution. Um, huge advancements in renewable energy, solar or wind. That's all in DC. So we're having this convergence where all of the endpoints in buildings are moving towards DC, but we're still powering our buildings traditionally with standard AC power. So when you do that, you have an energy conversion loss at every single endpoint. That's why your laptops uh, have internally their DC. They've got that big power brick on the back. They get very hot when you plug them in because it's transferring ac power from your wall outlet to the low voltage dc that it takes to power your computer so you're losing energy left and right all over the place so now we're seeing a shift where we're saying why are we transporting power with with ac anymore we should power everything directly with dc and that will reduce all of those energy um, inversions and make your building much more sustainable and really bring your total load down. So, we see that happening in buildings, and we're calling that the Tesla moment for buildings. So, I'm going to talk about a case study building where we actually incorporated this. And we wanted to, you know, just like any other green technology, um, you face the problem of having. A green premium is what what it's kind of coined as which is basically that it costs x amount more to implement that into a project than it would a traditional system so if we ever want to get sustainability intelligence all these things as a priority in every single building we have to bring the green premium down to where it is cost effective and where it makes sense for a building owner to make the decision to put it in more than just i want to have a sustainable goal but i'm going to pay three times more it's not going to catch on if that's the case so we actually implemented this, um, and that's where we talk about using low voltage technology, and how that can help bring the technology, uh, the pricing down. Um, so the case study I'm going to talk about today is called uh, the Sinclair Hotel. It was a historic renovation building. Um, was built in 1929. It is now a fully functioning um, autograph Marriott property. So we had lots of challenges along the way. Some of the challenges we had was Um, space. Um, you know, It was built in 1929, so it didn't have HVAC HVAC systems built in. So we had a pretty tight floor-to-ceiling space. Um, We had a lot of historic features we had to keep, so we couldn't just gut the whole floor and start over. We had to keep the existing corridors, some of the existing penetrations. Um, And it was also a Marriott property. So when you're thinking about implementing new technology into a brand standards, how do you make that work? So some of the D.C. backbone solutions we developed at this property were um, if you have a high rise building, then you have to use a backup solution for emergency systems. So that UL rating is called UL 924, which means that all emergency systems will be kept up for two hours for people to safely exit a building. Um, If you're familiar with this code and these requirements, it usually takes the form of a diesel generator backup. So when we said, how do we, we don't wanna bring fossil fuels into the building. We don't wanna store fossil fuels on site, have to exhaust them in the atmosphere every month when you have to test them. It's a lot of maintenance, it's a lot of work and they're not very reliable. And so we started researching um, the battery industry and how can we bring this newer technology into buildings and use it for backup power. So there wasn't actually any solution available at the time um, it was there uh, with the rating of u l nine twenty four I should say at this scale. um there were some lead acid battery solutions available in the market, but they were extremely bulky. They'd be about twice the size of our existing generator room. But we started working with LG, who's a big partner of ours, to um, they actually are producers of about half the batteries um, that are made in the world. Panasonic is is another one that's quite large. So they had really large batteries they were using in Korea to do peak load shaving off the grid to save energy, the demand charge on their peak loads um, on their cities. And so we were able to work with LG and work with UL to bring that battery solution to the United States and modify it to meet the UL924 requirements. And so um, we actually, for the first time in North America, used a lithium ion solution that has a UL924 rating to replace diesel generator from the building completely and back up all emergency systems with batteries um, which is all low, which is all a DC solution another solution we we incorporated into this project was if you're familiar at all about why we went from AC to DC why, why did we decide to go that way is because it's it can be very uh, dangerous to transport large power amounts of DC at a long distance it's not very efficient and because of the way that direct current works, there's not an opportunity, it's it's very unsafe to, um, if you touch it or something like that, it's it's very unsafe. Um, So there's a company that has figured out a solution to this. They are existing mainly in the distributed antenna system world. This company is called Volt Server. And essentially, if you think about with the 5G deployment and what they've had to do is deploy all these antennas all over. So if you think about an NFL stadium, for example, you might have antennas Wrapping the stadium, that would require um, almost miles of conduit to be piped to that system because you have to pipe the conduit because it's unsafe to touch electricity um, all the way to the endpoint. So, what Voltaire figured out how to do is send pulse packets, which they call digital electricity. So, they send pulses of packet of energy at 700 pulses a second. They can send up to two kilometers without any power loss. On a single pair of 18.2 wire, they can send Um, up to a thousand watts of power. So they solve the issue of how do we distribute DC power at a very long distance so it's safe to touch its class two, which means that um, it does not have to be handled by a licensed electrical contractor. So essentially what we did is we said, well, we're in a building, it's 17 stories. We need to send a lot of power a long way, just like you do with antennas. Let's bring this technology into a building and by doing that we can distribute power one intelligently because it's on pulse packets two safely so we eliminated conduit um, electrical labor and um, it's all done uh, from a centralized location so in our solution here we brought the transmitter racks to the basement of our building and we submit we transmitted DC power throughout the entire building um, in this safer, format instead of using AC powers traditionally with circuit panels and conduit. Um, on the end point of that, we then powered networking switches, which today's networking switches can power up to 90 watts of power um, on a single port. So if you think about 90 watts and how far that can get you inside a building, that can power almost any light fixture that you could think of, um, any TV, anything. Uh, HVAC system it can really get you really far but you still need power to that network switch that's how we use the volt server to power. it. Um, So from the uh, power supply which we have in the basement we transmit power throughout the building and then we we hit the endpoints of the Cisco networking switches in this building and then we power all the devices in a guest room with this type of PoE power. Um, So I will say that for Sinclair when we were working on the project the components we were able to transition to a low voltage DC POE input, we were able to do all the lighting, which is LEDs, again, or low voltage DC inside. Um, all of the motorized window treatments, all of the mini bars and all of the smart mirrors for the building. So when we powered all of those with this type of technology, we removed half the circuits from every guest room. We removed half of the circuit panels from the building. We gained about 1% of space back. So we gained about roughly a thousand square feet, give or take based on electrical room size. Um, And we could do it all with low voltage labor, eliminate conduit circuit panels, and then use a lower cost labor to install. So that's the backbone. I just wanna show you quickly what the internal of the room. So this is a floor plan of a typical guest room at Sinclair. Um, Up here in the closet you see, that's where we hide all of our equipment. It's platinum-rated, fanless, so it's extremely quiet. Guest doesn't even know it's there. It's behind a locked panel that has a magnet lock, so you can't see that it's there. Um, you can put distributed power sources in corridors and um, shared spaces, but we did it in the guest room because we have historic corridors, so we had some um, concerns there. So basically, from going into the room, instead of pulling, if you think about a distributed versus centralized approach, instead of pulling, you know. Eight category cables from a centralized closet. I just pull one 18 gauge for power, and one for and one high, uh, fiber cable for for the network. And I can power this entire room um, if I do the de- decentralized approach. Um, so I'll just quickly go through this. We've got uh, touch panels in the bathroom in the front area, uh, just to engage the guests. Um, because using this low voltage DC, using PoE as a power source, you're sending power, but you're also sending data and communication. So now you've just standardized all these devices you power in your room on a single IP platform, which is an open um, platform. It's not proprietary, which helps our operators and maintenance people because they can now control all these devices and they're not handcuffed to a proprietary system. Um, So we did all the lighting. We did um, an intelligent smart mirror. Uh, We did the minibar, all these light fixtures kind of going through all the things we were able to power with this low voltage technology in this room um, for this deployment. Um, So all of those devices are running off of low voltage cables, which which really drove the cost down for this. Um, So some of the actual savings we're kind of getting close um, to the end of my time. So just giving a brief summary of what we did. So some of the actual savings, we saved about 39% compared to our pre-energy, pre-renovation use. Obviously, this isn't a perfect matrix. I'm just showing you the actual data we have because it was an office building. You know, we did a lot more renovation than just these things we did the HVC system. But, you know, eight to five office building to 24-7 hotel with a huge restaurant, three bars. Um, we, We were able to save quite a bit of energy from this. We actually had an upfront CapEx savings of about 16% because of the reduced electrical cost. Because we were using low voltage cable, we were using low voltage labor, we were removing um, conduit, we were removing electrical panels. We actually downsized our incoming power from 3,000 amps to 2,500 amps. So all of those things, even though we had to add some more intelligent components, we were still CapEx savings there. We eliminated 50%. Our electrical closets, Um, we had a weight savings of about 75%. So if you think about how heavy metal conduit is um, to a large scale for 17 stories, it's quite heavy. So low voltage cables are extremely light and they use a lot less um, metal, which is why we had the embodied carbon savings as well of about 82%. So when we're talking about all the goals that we now have for intelligent buildings, um, connected platform, which using low voltage on a network is all an IP based system. So now we have intelligent control of power. Um, We talk about sustainability. With this type of technology, you can see we have extreme reduced energy savings. Um, So we're able to use these new technologies we're finding in the IT world, the DAS antenna world, the electric car industry, and we're bringing them now into the building for the first time and we can make the green premium of having these intelligent spaces come down much further. Um, And so that's one thing we proved out at Sinclair. And now we're trying to actively engage and bring these kind of savings into other types of buildings and other types of projects. Um, So let me click to the next slide. But yeah, that's uh, the end of my presentation. So if Charlie has any questions regarding that
1: i do um so i'm just waiting for my video to come up but um so i had i had the good fortune of of getting a tour of the the sinclair hotel um back in the days when it was still being developed um and 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 saw the conference room with all the devices on the table and 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 so on um but it, it it prompts the question you know what what challenges do you see in the market for the adoption of you know dc solutions across you know manufacturing for for building these products that can tie into you know this 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 platform
4: so some of the challenges that we see with uh working with manufacturers so one of the things i mentioned on the slide was that we actually brought to market from this project uh four different innovations from partners that are now sold on the market so we have worked with manufacturers before um in creating a dc solution that they can now take to market. But it's always the chicken and egg story with the manufacturers. They're saying, yes, this makes sense, um, but how many will be sold? You know, how many, are isn't your pipeline for us to sell this product on the market? And so um, that's always the the challenge with manufacturers. We we did see some some really good benefits with some of our manufacturing partners. Like for example, our, our partner, Somfy, makes the motorized window treatments. They make motors of all types, shapes and sizes for garage doors and all kinds of stuff. But their use case, one of the reasons that we were able to work with them to make a product that works directly with power over ethernet um, was because if you think about it, they make motors all over the world and they have five or six different SKUs because there's different power requirements for every single country. You know, we have a different one here, they've got different ones in Asia and Europe, so on and so forth. So power over Ethernet is actually the only universal power standard that is uh, out there today. So now they can have one PUE motor, one SKU, and they can ship it anywhere in the world. And so it's it's finding the business cases like that that we're trying to take to the manufacturers and show them that this is a valid business type for you. Um, They all recognize that the internal components of their products are already low voltage DC. So a lot of times we're simplifying the process for them. Um, We work with a lot of line designers and they always have concerns, well, where can I find PoE lights? Um, So when we talk with lighting manufacturers, they make the exact same light. There's nothing different about their light. All they're doing is removing the AC driver, this transforming AC power to DC. And then we provide power to it from a low voltage PoE driver. So we've been able to work very closely with manufacturers to modify their product slightly, to become available onto this market. But there are challenges um, just because it's still a relatively new approach and there is still a lot of education to be brought to manufacturers and jurisdictions as well.
1: Well, then that kind of leads me to the the other side of the equation, right? So we're, we're, we're trying to get more product on for a DC product that can tie into this. What do you see the future of, you know, this abundance of AC products that we have? You know, what happens to them?
4: So a lot of the products, um, like I mentioned, can be still used. It's just a matter of removing small components. Um, We're working right now with LG to to renovate some of their um, VRF air conditioning units. And it's only a very small portion of the actual unit that that is taking the AC power and transmitting it to DC. So it's a matter of having a technician come to a site And swap one component and the the rest of the appliance is the exact same that's you know example for an appliance or an air conditioning system Um, so i think that for if you're going to be changing your entire infrastructure though i think one of the one of the things you're getting at is it does have to be kind of a a really big gut renovation if you're going to change your your infrastructure Um, if not you're still going to have your whole building you know wired with ac power so it's like if you have your, I'll go back to the vehicle example. Um, you know your standard gasoline engine, and you say, "I want to make this into a electric vehicle now." Well, it's not really very easy to just take it and um, add, you know, low voltage components and batteries, and just make it an electric vehicle. It's really kind of a something that needs to be done either a full full gut or you know from from a, a new build perspective.
1: Okay, so I. I think we have a video coming up on um, for the next round. But before we do that, I, I want to encourage all everybody in the audience, you know, so we have some you know, great panelists here um, to, to add your, you know, include your questions, you know, um, you have access to them, they have a lot of knowledge. And so I'd encourage you to put that in the chat. Um, and so with that, uh, I think we have a video coming up.
4: Half of the energy in the world goes into electric motors. How do we make every watt of energy and electricity worthwhile?
0: Climate change is the biggest challenge of our time, and we need to do everything in our power to reverse it.
4: If we could replace every motor in the world with our technology, we could cut 25% of carbon emissions. We have done something incredible that many considered impossible until
2: now. You start to look at this as a product that can save hundreds of thousands of lives and hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 going into
4: the atmosphere. It would be the carbon equivalent of giving the world seven new Amazon rainforests.
3: Okay, so
1: um, our next our next panelist is, uh, excuse me, is Jessica Morris. She's the director of product manufa- marketing, sorry, product marketing, built environments for turntide technologies. Jessica holds over 15 years of experience creating greener, smarter, more sustainable buildings. She started her career in the United States Navy as a surface war officer, specializing in nuclear propulsion overseeing the operations and maintenance of nuclear reactors on aircraft carriers. That's really cool. Um, before, her, before her current role in Turntide, she served as a direct uh, global director of product marketing for Digital Lumens, an industrial IoT solutions company. Jessica, welcome.
3: Thanks, Charlie. And hi, everyone. Thank you for having me today. Uh, as mentioned, I'm with uh, Turntide, and we provide technology for sustainable operations for commercial real estate um, applications. And as you saw in the video, our foundational technology is our smoke murder system, which is comprised of a high-efficiency switched reluctance motor that's driven by software and algorithms, and then IoT-enabled and connected to the cloud so that we can um, gain visibility and insight into how those motors are operating, have the ability to control them, and then make them smarter over time as we get data back from those machines. Uh, We also offer um, solutions for building automation and for portfolio management. And so we offer a full technology stack for helping our customers achieve their energy efficiency and sustainability goals. And so what I want to talk about today as we think about selecting the right solution set for our properties, is keeping in mind how important sustainability is as a piece of the transformation journey to digitization for your real estate portfolios. And not only is sustainability incredibly important in that digital transformation, but how we think about and define sustainability really needs to be changing. Um, The sustainability measures that we're typically used to are kind of an internal cost center where we're uh, collecting metrics on, um, you know, our CO2 reduction and our energy and our water consumption, so that can, that can go in our CSR reports and we can report on our, our ESG measures. But sustainability today really is more than just that kind of traditional box checker and is now a, a strategic leader within an organization that can allow for an organization to create more bill business resiliency and how they maintain their buildings and their portfolios and and give opportunities for growth and really being a leader within uh, their space. And the reason to really be talking about this now is is that you've seen through today's presentations. There's a number of technologies available today to you at ever more affordable prices to bring your buildings into this sustainability digital transformation. and. As you think about that, it's important to think about how it can help you achieve your overall goals for your portfolio. It can help you create business resiliency by making you more um, resistant to change and fluctuations in the market space. Things like we saw this past year with the deep freeze in Texas and how that affected energy rates and what we're seeing right now with with covid and the uh, wildfires on the west coast and how those have an impact on how we manage and, and monitor indoor air quality and so the the productivity of the employees that we can provide through um healthier better quality spaces is critical to finding new ways to um improve the operations of our our businesses and how we can get the most out of our employees as well as making ourselves more resistant to um, those types of forces that we can't predict like the covid that can affect our employees and also when we think about the fact that our infrastructure and our equipment is aging um in our buildings it becomes harder and more costly to maintain we introduce more risk to our business in terms of unplanned downtime if something like an HVAC unit fails, and that can affect the experience of our employees as well as our uh, business customers if we're working in more types of retail applications. And so not only is there an impact to our business and our brand if we can't deliver continuous operations of our facilities, but also if we can't be more effective with our labor and how we allocate that to maintain our systems, we're, we're losing the opportunity to be more effective with um, Our operations overall and how we maintain our portfolios. And as a surprise to no one, um, people are looking for organizations that align with their personal goals and their commitments to the environment and sustainability. So when you're looking for employees, they want to work for uh, organizations that are conscious about these types of things and companies who are looking for new spaces are also looking for buildings and properties that align and provide opportunities to align with their corporate goals. So they're looking for Energy Star. They're looking for LEED certified spaces. And so when you think about sustainability in this larger context, it's really critical to the continued success of your portfolio and we know that over 30 percent of the energy used in commercial buildings tends to be wasted and so there's tons of opportunity for these easy conservation measures to start you on that journey to sustainability and so we like to think of this as a progression over time and so the first thing that i think is important to do is kind of to assess where you are with your buildings and your systems on this progression to uh, what Uh, Kevin was talking today about that grid interactive efficient building that autonomous smart building and the reality is there's there's a dual impact so as you improve your ability to have environmental impact by reducing things like your energy consumption you also have the ability to drive business impact by being Uh, more efficient with your operations and reducing your utility spends. And it starts with conservation measures. It starts with that low hanging fruit, which is um, things a lot of you have probably already done. Um, Moving to LED lighting systems, installing occupancy sensors, putting low flow toilets in, so that you're reducing the amount of utilities that you're consuming within your properties. And then the next step after that is, is monitoring and control. Um, As Peter Drucker said, you can't manage what you can't measure. And so once you've started taking these measures to reduce your consumption, you really need to understand where the remaining consumption is happening so that you can take measures to improve it. And you need to put systems in place that give you the control capabilities to move to the next level, which is really optimization. Because once we have that visibility and once we understand where we have opportunities for reduction and we have the ability to control them, we can now optimize our systems and we can find that delicate balance between energy efficiency and creating spaces that meet those comfort and environmental health standards that we're looking for for our employees and our customers. And then the last step along that journey is getting to that fully automated building where you look at the interconnectivity of systems and you're able to put um, ai in place that allows you to maintain set points to get early indication of out of specification conditions in your environment or in your equipment so that you can be more proactive and efficient with your maintenance and you also can um, put your building on autopilot and trust that these systems are going to be able to interconnect to provide the optimally efficient experience. And I won't read all of these to you, but I I wanna drive home the fact about why sustainability is important as part of your uh, real estate strategy, because the race to net zero is accelerating. And this is something that um, particularly in Europe and the UK where they have really set carbon reduction targets that they're looking to meet and businesses are going to be in jeopardy if they don't meet those hurdles. Um, Across the world, this is becoming um, more commonplace. It's becoming table stakes for being part of the commercial real estate space. And we're looking at two-thirds of commercial real estate leaders who report that um, carbon reduction is now part of their sustainability strategy. And we expect by 2025, almost all of the the leaders in the space are going to be having – policies around these types of things in place. So if you're not thinking about these now, you're in danger of um, not being that brand leader that I talked about earlier and differentiating yourself from your competition in your space. And the important thing as well is when we're thinking about the right solution sets is to think about where we are today and where we want to go and how we need to get there. And connectivity is really key to this. And it's, connectivity to the cloud um, for those data lakes that kevin talked about that enable intelligence and allow us to create algorithms to get smarter over time but it's connectivity of systems themselves within buildings Uh, the traditional um, building control systems that are in place today are often standalone though this is changing more and more companies are offering cloud solutions but today in a lot of buildings you have these standalone solutions you have a lighting controller you have an hvac system and probably those are at a standalone station that's In a utility closet or in a facility manager's office and the only way to get data or to make changes or understand what's going on with your building is physically being in that space and then all that data is siloed within that one system itself and so not only do you not get a holistic view of what's going on in your building but you don't get a holistic view of what's going on in your entire portfolio and so when you're thinking about the solutions you want to put in place i think that open connectivity capability is key is moving away from proprietary point solutions and moving to systems that enable that system of systems within a building where you can see the interplay of your lighting of your HVAC, of your chiller plants of your shading and your daylighting strategies into one holistic solution that manages um indoor air quality and the employee and customer experience and allows you to really holistically understand everything that's happening within your portfolio and be able to do that remotely and in a centralized fashion. And last but not least, I wanna talk about the importance of business outcomes and how you think about um, the solutions you want to put in place and the goals that you ultimately want to achieve. I think a lot when we talk about sustainability, we're really talking about that first step in that digital transformation journey that can serve portion, where we're looking at um, projects with simple paybacks, with short ROIs that help us capture that cost savings through energy consumption reduction, um, but there's there's more to be um, gained if we think holistically about what we want to do for our business. Uh, reducing carbon emissions goes hand in hand with reducing operating costs through um, utility reduction. But there's also cost savings in terms of being able to operate your portfolio more effectively, being able to understand when you actually need to deploy a service technician, making sure you have the right part on hand when that person goes out to a site um and there's a real opportunity cost of not maintaining your equipment and not having visibility to avoid unplanned downtime and disruptive failures um you know if you cannot create a, an environment for your your customers you may have to shut down a facility um, places like warehousing and distribution of a conveyor belt goes down uh, that can cost a company hundreds of thousand dollars an hour in not being able to transmit product so there's a real cost to not being able to have visibility into how your facility is operating and what's going on with your equipment and there's a lot of uh Important information that can be gathered when you have the ability to see your entire portfolio and all of its systems in one centralized way. And again, we've talked about that ability to strengthen and protect your brand. And there's value to all of these different types of business outcomes. And I think it's important to think holistically about what you want to achieve and the systems that you select and how they help you meet all of these different types of operational outcomes. And I'll end with just two brief case studies. Um, One is with our motor retrofit side. Um, One of our customers is Sprouts Farmers Market who have a strong commitment to carbon reduction and energy efficiency. They started with one store with five rooftop units and deployed our smart motor system within those. And they were able to achieve a 75% energy reduction and just over a year simple payback period. So there's a huge, energy and cost reduction savings capability here, they're now able to um, have better insight into how their equipment is running, and they're now looking at deploying this across their portfolio uh, so that they can um, continue that commitment to carbon reduction within their facilities. And last but not least, uh, I wanna talk about Fifth Third Bank, which is um, one of our customers who's more focused on the automation and portfolio visibility Uh, side. So Fifth Third was looking for a solution where they could uh, maintain the systems and equipment that they had in place, but get better centralized visibility into everything that was going on within their portfolio and be able to better manage and optimize how their facilities were running. And so uh, we were able to provide basically an overlay layer. So we were able to meet them where they already were with their technology journal journey with the uh, HVAC and lighting control systems they already had in place, but pull those into a centralized system so now they can see everything in one place. They can make decisions about what kind of set points they want to manage across their entire portfolio and be more effective with how they understand and maintain their equipment. And so what they were able to see just by putting this automation layer in place and being able to really see the data and how their systems and their their buildings were operating. Just from that, being able to optimize and find a 20% reduction in energy use by just putting that controls and visibility layer in place. And also by having better understanding of their equipment and systems, they were able to decrease their work orders by 15% because they were able to be more effective and proactive about how they approach their maintenance and also manage set points that they knew were going to meet Um, customer expectations. And with that, uh, Charlie, I think we'll open it up to questions.
1: All right. So um, things like smart lighting, smart motors, um, you know, often have a a higher upfront cost. Okay. Um, And there's simpler options that, that have, do have strong energy savings and shorter payback periods. And so how do how do your customers create a a, a business the business justifications for these higher priced smart you know solutions?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and uh, Hannah talked about this a little bit in her presentation about that that green premium, um, and that's definitely something that I think you have to take into consideration. I think a project still has to have a compelling ROI. Um, But what I think I see often happening is people are looking at that simple payback. They're just looking at that energy savings. And I think it's what you really need to consider or what I hope people can start considering is really total cost of ownership of a solution. Um, what can it provide for you that goes beyond just that, that initial upfront energy savings? How long is that equipment expected to last? Is it more reliable than what you have in place? Are you going to have to, you know, if you're doing an LED retrofit, are you gonna to have to replace that every three years because it's cheaper technology? Or can you put something in place that's going to last longer? And also what else is it going to help me achieve? If I can get visibility, uh, into how my equipment is operating. Now, can I be more efficient with how I deploy my facility maintenance technicians? Can I make sure that I avoid unnecessary truck rolls? Can I make sure when I do send that service technician out for my HVAC, um, that they have the right part on them so they can get the project done first to the right time, you know, right time at the first time. And so when you start looking at those secondary savings, when you look at the cost and the damage to your brand of having unplanned downtime in your equipment within your facilities those start to add up into real additional savings that that are drivers for your business and so um, there is a premium on some of these types of technologies but i think the returns you get in the long run and the total cost of ownership and and the abilities that data opens up for you overcome some of those initial upfront costs
1: okay so you know, I think in in the industry we hear we hear green, we hear lead, we hear sustainability. You know, and and they're used a lot, and sometimes they feel I don't want to say jargon, but you know, like overused marketing buzzwords. So so how do you how do you go about actually building that that you know compelling business case for implementing you know sustainability and and, and those practices?
3: Yeah, it's, um, I think it's looking at what it, the actual outcomes of implementing these types of solutions are. I think a great example is um, USAA. I know over the last 20 years or so, they've made strong investments in um, implementing best in uh, sustainability best practices across their portfolio. And I believe in the last 17 years or so, that has equated to about $25 million in, um, Uh, savings from implementing these sustainability practices. And I know they've achieved over 50% energy savings in their portfolio by implementing these sustainability best practices. And I know somewhere around 75% of their portfolio is LEED certified. So when you think about, you know, just this one example of what USAA has been able to um, achieve for their business through implementing sustainability, I think you can start to get beyond um, those buzzwords and and even though they can seem sort of buzzy, I think there is real value when we go back to thinking about there's competition in the marketplace for tenants. and tenants are looking for space that aligns with their corporate goals. And a lot of goal, um, companies, like you were mentioning in your presentation, Charlie, you know, are have new goals around investing in ESG and sustainability measures. And so even though they can sound buzzy, I think um, the end goal is important because you're helping. Um, others meet their mission by meeting their ESG goals. All
1: right. So I think with that, um, we actually want to bring back the other panelists and kind of, you know, expand the conversation. Although I, I did have a question for Kevin that I, I did not ask and, uh, I'd actually like to hear the answer. I mean, Kevin, um, you would, you know, in, in the intro, we had mentioned you have 13 if test bed projects. Okay. and what Curious to know is which one of those are showing the you know as we start looking at sustainability and such.
2: Um, yeah, great, great question. So of course we talked a lot about this EMIS uh, test bed, and we have actually a couple of GEB test beds, and obviously we think those are very promising. Um, that, that's, this, there's a couple of things I'm I'm really excited about. Uh, one of them, in fact, is a DC microgrid. Uh, so we're, we're doing, a, and I think this, you know, again, it'll be important for folks to, to sort of see, you know, proved out what is that value proposition? How does this really deliver? And there's, there's a lot that we're looking to learn. It's a very different implementation than um, the one that Sinclair has done. So that one is pretty exciting. Um, and, and I'd say that's probably the most complicated um, uh, project we have going on. At at the sort of other end of um of the, the scale, there's um there's a really interesting high performance window that um has that, that a company called Alpen has developed. And it's a you know it's just one of these great stories where uh they're it, well basically this is a quad pane window that has the same weight and profile of a double pane window, which has just never been achieved before. It's got uh, R8 performance, which is uh, you know a, a the highest performing double pane window has about R3. So it's a it's an enormous leapfrog in terms of its um, its energy performance. We again, when you talk about reducing the energy load of a building, there's nothing like the facade to do that because so much energy is lost out through windows. Um, And uh, what's great about the story, and I I don't know, I'm a bit of a nerd about these things, but it makes it leverages essentially the uh, thin glass that has been developed for flat screen TVs and cell phones, as well as the surplus of Krypton gas. That is, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, krypton gas generating capacity developed for halogen light bulbs. Well, we now have LEDs, so now there's all this krypton gas that doesn't have anywhere to go. It's actually a great insulating material in a double, in a, this quad pane window. So it, uh, you know, again, just reuses the investment and in technology that from other sectors um, and uh, pulls it together in this this remarkable window. Um, so I'd say, you know, that's a widget, you know, set and forget. You don't have to think about it. The other end of the extreme, uh, you've got this DC microgrid—a total rethink on how we actually um, construct buildings.
1: So, so now I get a question for the larger panel. Um, at, at a recent, I think it was actually, I think it was a, it was a real conference, one of the maybe one of the CIO forums. You know, a very large real estate developer during COVID went to shut down and out as much load as they could. You know, there was minimal occupancy. How do I shut down the elevators? How do I, you know, reduce my energy footprint, reduce my costs, et cetera? Only to find out they had very little input or impact on the power that they were trying to conserve and that the majority of the power was actually sitting in with the tenants. So as we're looking at sustainability, and, and a lot of this conversation goes to the the you know the landlord okay and the, and the building owner how how do we you know move this and to address that you know energy consumption that is you know is sitting inside the tenant I'd be I'd be interested in everyone's thoughts are, I mean are there things for example Hannah when you take a look at what you've got are there things that the um, that the landlord could do creating a you know DC platform that tenants could leverage those types of things.
4: Yeah, Absolutely. So one thing we're actually working with a multifamily developer right now, and we talk a lot about intelligent buildings and how do they act autonomously, but you're running into the exact problem that we always have. Well, there's only so much you can do with its uh, their environment. You know, in a multifamily scenario, you've got their own apartment. And so one thing we're developing with that, um, that project is how do we now not only have the building operate, um, autonomously and making intelligent decisions but how can we have the building educate the tenant to make more energy efficient decisions and so some of the things that we're looking at is um, developing you know applications or phones that can offer incentives um, and also show you your energy savings and show your energy goals in exact correlation with things you're doing at your apartment so for example you know maybe it's a hot summer day and you crank down your HVAC to 68, you know, using your, your, and you know, intelligent connected devices. Um, that's when we're thinking about how do we use this as an opportunity to build sustainable habits for the tenant. So maybe then they can just get a notification straight to their phone that says, Hey, just so you know, you know, by doing this, you're increasing the energy, your bill one by this much, but it's also, you know, um, not good for the environment. Maybe we put a cute picture of a squirrel that his habitat's been destroyed because you know you've, you've done this uh, you know something along those lines. We haven't worked out exactly every detail, but we really want to get to the idea of giving people more agency and connection because everybody wants a sustainable world. Everybody wants a better world for our you know future generations, a better climate. But we're so detached right now from what our actions actually do um, with the environment. So we really want to bridge that gap using software. And using all of our uh, connected devices to bridge that gap between um, the the user and how their actions actually affect you know energy and sustainability goals they might have. Cool.
1: Um, Kevin, are you are you the the landlord as well as the tenant in these buildings? Or are you the the you know is it really all just you? Um, are you affected by this issue?
2: Yeah, oh, well, absolutely. So we are the landlord. Let's just start Mm -hmm. off the bat with that. Um, And then uh, the the second thing I think is during the early days of COVID, we were pretty surprised that um, facility occupancy has a lot less impact on a building's energy load than you would think. Um, and, And actually as part of that EMIS, project that I was talking about we um, there's what's called a single pane of glass component to it and it, we looked across uh, in that case I guess a, t- a total of about 22 buildings and you could really understand occupancy and um, and and energy consumption and in some buildings there really is no correlation at all which is really counterintuitive uh, and so you'd say, well, and, and this led us to, and I think it's led others to sort of say, well, what's going on? How can this possibly be? Um, and and the, um, the reason for that uh, is, well, there are the reasons for that. We also like to say that buildings are snowflakes and uh, every building has a unique, uh, you know, sort of something unique about it. But some of the things, the big commonalities are that uh, there's essentially one load that like a data center a small data center that then requires large amounts of equipment operate to condition that data center regardless of what's going on in the rest of the building because the assumption was the thing is always being occupied so you would that, that control approach and that equipment approach makes sense under normal circumstances um, the the second thing is that even if we had very few people in um a building we had this protocol of operating the HVAC at least two hours uh, before and after for, you know, air changes and CDC protocol, which actually increased energy consumption. We've disabled demand control ventilation in all buildings uh, per CDC recommendations, increasing uh, energy consumption. And then lastly, and this one was sort of surprising to me, is that there's a, a fair amount of special finishes, particularly wood finishes that really require um, kind of tight humidity control. And you can't really let the building drift as much as as you would think. Um, so those those are sort of like big, opera, those are big buckets, like, well, what do you do with that? Not a lot. But then in terms of what this panel is discussing, there's other attributes where like, if there's only a couple of people and, um, Occupying a space where formerly there were hundreds, but your lighting control says you got to turn on the, you know, the floor. Basically, you're going to turn on the lights for the floor. Uh, and there's a, a, it is surprisingly challenging to uh, the control that granular control that I'm sort of promoting, and we're all promoting. Uh, actually, everybody on this panel is talking about uh, that we see as the facility of the future. That certainly isn't the facility of the past. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just, there's just stuff you just can't, you just literally can't turn off. Uh, so anyway, that's, so the moral of the story, the bottom line is we need a lot better control overall, a lot more equipment.
1: Well, that, you know, Jessica, it you know, it makes me think that, you know, your solutions deliver intelligence, which deliver insights and so on. Um, You know, in this scenario that we're talking about now, you know, are there insights that could be made available to the tenant that would cause them to behave that be shared by the landlord, help the tenant behave differently to, you know, manage these, this, you know, I I don't want to say excessive load, but, you know, necessarily unwarranted load, um,
3: yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and Hannah mentioned this as well as, you know, when you can provide more granular control to building occupants, um, you can help with those prompts. You can help maintain those kind of optimal set points. Um, and I think one of the things you can also look at is, is the foundational technology that's supporting the building. So as Kevin was saying, if I can't um, change my run times of my equipment, if I, you know, if I need to maintain certain humidity, um, Set points and things, and I can't actually turn my equipment off. Then what can I do to make my equipment as efficient as possible? Um, and it turned out our actually our main go-to market um, right now is is HVAC retrofits for our smart motors. So if you can, you know, slash the um, energy consumption of your HVAC system by two thirds or more, then by default, you know, even if your tenants are um, maybe not using the space as optimally as you would. Desire, you're still finding ways of reducing the overall building consumption.
1: So that, that kind of leads me to, you know, the, the next thing I, you know, we see, you know, everything we're talking about today makes sense, and it's certainly a long-term view. Um, but and and in some cases, we're actually asking people to stretch their imagination, you know, with you know DC power distribution and so on. In, in your perspective, what are the barriers to entry? okay what are the the items that you know when we start to pursue these conversations we need to focus on uh whether it's the people that we need to engage um you know how do we inform them how do we handle the trades i mean i'm I'm curious to see for each of you where's that challenge that needs to be overcome in order to drive adoption and so maybe hannah you've you've gone down this road before i think in in sinclair, I know between filing and, and other things you yeah. know what are you, what are your thoughts on? Um, how to overcome this.
4: So the first barrier to entry is always, what is the cost going to be? And they don't always wanna know what is your cost gonna be, but they wanna know if it was designed one way, before you design anything, they wanna know um, if it was designed one way, what's the cost? But if it's designed traditionally, what's the other cost? And can you tell me before you do any design, before we get any pricing, that yours is gonna be cheaper? So that's the first barrier that we encounter. And um, you know it can be a hard barrier for us because one, the market is changing rapidly with cost of things, um, Mm -hmm. as well as labor is very different for many markets and many, many markets across the United States. So it can be hard to know exactly what your labor costs are gonna be from state to state, from city to city. Um, So that's always the biggest barrier that we come from um, right at the beginning is is because it, it all almost always comes down to cost. And so that's why we're really trying to tackle how do we get over that hump using different types of solutions and technologies. Um, another barrier that we see is also that because this is a newer technology or a newer approach to powering buildings, um, there, a typical electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, architect might not have experience working with these systems previously. So if I'm an owner, and I go to my architect and say, hey, heard about the system. Sounds great. Sounds like I can get great energy efficiency. Then they say, well, I've never heard of it, so I'm no, I don't recommend it. Or there's limited research online, so I don't recommend it. Um, it's like if you're thinking about buying a Tesla and you go to your mechanic and you ask him, should I buy a Tesla? And he's going to say, no, <laughs> you shouldn't <laughs> buy it. Um, yeah, it's, it's very similar. So it, it's, a, it's a matter of Getting the education out there, making people feel more comfortable, proving that it's viable, that it's been around a lot longer than people realize, just in different types of industries, um, and then also proving out the cost um, evaluation. So those are the two barriers that we see.
1: So, so Jessica, you know, being at you know with the with the product that you provide, you know, um, in the in the hierarchy of building construction how do you how do you elevate to the owner because this is really i guess an owner interested solution so how do you how do you get to them to say look you, you we need to we think you should think a little bit differently is, is is do you do it through the engineer or do you have to try to get to them so that they can see the value
3: uh yeah it depends sometimes it's the local facility level and then you kind of work your way up to regional or corporate sometimes it starts corporate and it um, kind of flows down. I think every organization is different. Um, but one of the things I've definitely found is, is decisions aren't made in, in isolation anymore, particularly when you think about the interconnectivity con- of systems and equipment, there's no one single stakeholder anymore. Um, and I agree on this, You know, the, the upfront cost is typically the initial barrier and op- obviously finding the capex is another barrier. And what I start to find is when you think about the fact that some of these solutions have multiple stakeholders, sometimes you find these opportunities for additional budgeting as well. So the energy manager may be you know focused on energy reduction, and that's their targeted goal. But when you also can say this solution not only is going to save energy but it's going to help with things like indoor air quality, now you can bring environmental health and safety in, and they may have different budget spend that combined can provide these solutions that give a more holistic Capability for the entire building of the entire portfolio. So um, thinking about the multiple stakeholders um, that could benefit from one single project, depending on how it's implemented, um, I think, can help overcome some of those initial hurdles.
1: Now, Kevin, you're on the other side of the equation, right? So you're the recipient of this. But you know what we heard is, you know, cost and ROI is is a driver. And you know, you've stated that the goal is to, you know, save the, you know, the, you know, the the population money. Um, so you know, how do you balance this idea of listen? I'm going to pay more. I mean, is it is it OpEx? How do you how do you address these these uh, uh, drive market drivers, for a lack of a better term? Yeah,
2: I'll say two things. So so the first thing, and this is sort of what I guess is going well, um, we at the government and I think others um, will generally say that we will deploy a technology if life cycle cost effective. So we're never going to deploy anything that doesn't make sense over its life cycle, which in and of itself is a bit of a challenge. Nobody says if I build a giant atrium with a bunch of beautiful wood that is going to require you to run your HVAC when the building is occupied because I need to maintain that wood, what's the ROI on that? They don't say that I want the wood, I want the atrium. But when it comes to equipment, people say I want to see life cycle cost-effective payback. Um, The great news is that most of these technologies are life cycle cost-effective. They really are and if we just did an evaluation of Turntide's motor for example and its payback is essentially immediate it costs less than the premium motor that it would compete with um, and it delivers better performance so that's not necessarily an issue um i think we're in a time where there's a lot of great top-down messaging that says we want to do this we need to do this we should do these efficient you know, carbon reducing, energy saving buildings. I think that's great. Um, There's a lot of third part for the federal government in particular. There's a lot of third party financing, but there's third party financing for the private sector as well. Those companies have already picked all the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Um, And so they're they're actually excited about some of these innovative technologies because it's an opportunity space for them. Um, And then I think the other thing that's good is that we have a, you know, a fair amount of ways of specifying. We understand what we want to specify. We we know, you know, essentially what the requirements are. That's that that's the stuff that's good. Um, the part that I think is is challenging is that there are so many opportunities for things to um, sort of not occur at the right place in a really complicated and relatively long running process. So you start out. Say, I'd like to have this new high performance switch reluctance motor. Um, I would like to do a DC microgrid. And that's really this you say that, and then somehow the design goes down this process and it doesn't include your recommendation. And now it's really too late to insert it back. Or, alternatively you saw it and i mean i have done this so many times you put in all this effort you reviewed the design you said you didn't include it please put that back in there they put it back in there you go way down the line when you don't review it anymore and it's been value engineered out and Mm -hmm. get it back in and that's that's sort of on the design side then on on o m contracts which is how a lot of stuff gets replaced uh, especially at end of life uh, that's not huge capital equipment uh, o and contracts, generally speaking, have like-for-like like built into them, um, and if they don't, you know, just like, you know, you're saying, it's like, well, people will look and say, well, I don't want to have more addict stock of something that's different than what I already have, and when you think about motors, for example, this is one of the biggest barriers, right? They're saying, I don't want one motor that's going to be different than all my other motors. I want the same motor so that it's just all the same motors. And if I replace one, I'm going to just pull it off the shelf. It's off. And there's another saying that people never got fired for you know specifying IBM. Like if you're way down this food chain, uh, why would you stick your neck out on something that might break or not, might not work when you have something that you know will work? And um, buildings are, uh, you know, they 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 last for a long time. These pieces of equipment last for a long time. You need to know it's going to work. You also know all of the O&Ms, all the predictive maintenance, everything that is associated with what you know is you know how to do it. You know, you know, you're not, there's like the early adopters, one type of person, but it's a vast majority of the others are not, they're just not really in that, in that, in. they're just not in that place um so yeah it it and then there's just unintended you know there's just some things that tend to bite people uh and they get really nervous right we had a great deal of success deploying um what are called magnetic levitation chillers it was a you know really next generation um, is a next generation technology delivers amazing performance it's really cool everybody loves them uh, we've started finding, again, in the Department of Unintended Consequences, there's a couple of things. First of all, they're really sensitive to bad power quality. Who would have known? Um, and there's been a lot of challenges with power quality lately. This actually causes unbelievable, the chiller then shuts down, very expensive part is broken, uh, and it's you, you're, you're in a world of pain. Uh, secondly, one of those four manufacturers of chillers that we that have these magnetic levitation compressors um, is actually been sold, and it's no longer a Canadian company. It's a Chinese company, and that Chinese company it actually has some components that there as the replacement components that we as the government can't use, can't certify. We're not allowed to use them for you know, a variety of of, of of actually genuine cyber concerns about what the Chinese are doing. So now you've invested in a 30 year piece of equipment that's been sold to somebody else and you can't service it, what do you do? That's an expensive uh, proposition. You can see how some people might think, uh, well, that's not a good thing. Um, so anyway, that's that's lessons from the field. And I, I will say the last thing, which I think is really kind of interesting, uh, and I know I've probably gone on too long here, but it's that you know, our, when, you know, just being clear about what it is to be a landlord. So number one, the way people are measured is, are your tenants happy? That's, that is your metric, right? That's why people adjust the temperature. That's why people change the, whatever they're gonna do, they are measured on making people happy, not saving energy. So you may, if, if your energy saving strategy puts that happiness at risk and you're measured on happiness, you're not gonna do the energy saving strategy.
1: All right. Well, I think we're at time, so I'm going to I'm gonna thank everybody. This has been fantastic. And turn it over to Sarah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Charlie, for moderating. And thanks to the panelists for your uh, very insightful messages to the audience here. Really appreciate all your efforts and time to put into preparing the event and sharing your insights today. And I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the day and will join us for our next seminars and our upcoming conference. All right.
3: Thanks, everybody. Thank you.